good to be with you tonight. Uh, it was a privilege to worship with you this morning and a privilege to be able to uh, open God's Word for you this evening. If you would open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 96. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 499. 499, that's the 96th Psalm. Before we read God's Word together, let's ask Him to help us as we study His Word. Heavenly Father, You tell us in Your Word that our hearts are desperately sick and they are deceitful above all else. Who can know them? Who can search them? And You tell us that You alone search the hearts and the minds. And so we ask as we come to Your Word this morning that You would test us, or this evening, that You would test us, that You would be at work in us by your Spirit, that you would open our eyes and open our ears. We pray with the psalmist that you would search us, O God, and uh, know our hearts, try us, and see if there be any anxious way in us, see if there's a hurtful way in us, and lead us, Lord, in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. And read together the 96th Psalm. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. <clears throat> this morning's sermon ended with the idea of worship. Uh, and the reality is we, we heard the first question of the shorter catechism reference this morning as well. The reality is that we were created for worship. There's a sense in which we recognize that, that all of life is worship, certainly. Uh, but we're created for corporate or gathered worship with all of God's people. It's one of the things that he created us for. And we see that uh, in this psalm and elsewhere in the Old Testament. When we turn to the New Testament, if we look at places like uh, Hebrews 10, we're reminded, as the author tells us, that we ought to not forsake the gathering together of ourselves of this same thing. 
If we look at Revelation 5 and we catch a glimpse of heaven, we see that even there what's happening is that God's people are gathered together and they're worshiping God and it's their chief delight. It's what they're taking joy in. We see that the greatest delight of all creation is found in worshiping God. Now, John Piper makes this point in his famous quote from the book, Let the Nations Be Glad. You may well have heard this quote before. He says, missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Missions purpose. I, as a church planner and a missionary, my purpose is to see people worship God. Now, this <clears throat> psalm was first written in relation to worship. David wrote it when the Ark of the Covenant came into the city of Jerusalem for the first time. And uh, the story of the Ark coming into Jerusalem is recorded in First Chronicles uh, 16. And we actually see this psalm there, too, in verses 23 to 33. It's, it's almost identical to this. Now remember the Ark of the Covenant. It was a box made of wood covered in gold with two angels on top of it. And uh, the thing about the Ark is that it was a central point for worship, for the worship of the people of God in the Old Testament. It was where atonement was made for the sins of Israel. It was where uh, the rep it was also the representation of God's presence in Israel. So it was where they went to him, to him, and it was also where he came to them. It was in the tabernacle, and then later it was in the temple. And, and this was important because it was in the middle of God's people. When they were traveling through the wilderness, and then when they came into the land, it was always right in the center, the, uh, center of the people. It was where God dwelt, right in the middle of his people. So the coming of the ark into Jerusalem, the new capital city of Israel as David was king, uh, was a significant event. And David wrote this psalm of praise calling not just Israel, he calls Israel in, chapter, in Psalm 95, but in Psalm 96 we see him calling all the world to worship the Lord. Now today we don't just worship God in Jerusalem, but wherever God's people are. So our family lives in Hexham, England, which I told you about just a moment ago. It's about 20 miles as the crow flies from the Scottish border. We live right on Hadrian's Wall. It's a beautiful location. There's hills and dales, and there are lovely walks, and there are sheep right out our back door. So in the summer when it's warm and we open the windows, we hear the bleeding of sheep constantly. Uh, it uh, has friendly people. It's a small English market town, everything that you might uh, conjure up in your mind when you think of that. But there is next to nothing of the worship of God. And that's why we picked up and moved several thousand miles, far from family and friends, full of difficult changes and challenges, and we want to see the, the nations, even in Hexham, England, called to worship the Lord like David is doing here, just like this psalm does. So what does this psalm tell us? Well, I've given you a title tonight, 
the answer to the question. Sing to the Lord all the earth. And I want us to see three things. And really the first point I'm going to spend the vast majority of my time on uh, this evening. Uh, the second two are applications uh, that we'll get to in time. The first thing that this psalm wants us to do is see the glory of the Lord. See the glory of the Lord. To sing the glory of the Lord, the first thing we have to do is see it. If we've not caught a glimpse of it, we can't sing of it. What is the thing that you find most glorious? The, the reality is that for, for many, even those who profess to be Christians, and I say this knowingly, I was raised in a Christian home, I've professed Christ as far back as I can remember, but for most of us who profess to be Christians, it is too often something other than Christ that we see as most glorious. Jesus tells us, doesn't he, that where our treasure is, there will our hearts be also. And we live lives in such a way that demonstrate what we find to be most glorious. Sometimes these are good gifts. Sometimes the things that we treasure the most are uh, good gifts or biblical responsibilities that we hold to more tightly than we hold to the one who gave them to us. So it's easy for us to imagine. In fact, probably many of you have had the experience of being a mother who locates her identity so centrally in her parenting that when she has some perceived judgment or criticism from outside, from someone else, it can send her spiraling into the depths of anxiety or self-defensiveness or anger. Maybe some of you have had the experience of being a father who focuses so much on his responsibility to provide for his family that he fails to spend time with them, to read the Bible to them, to read the Bible with them, to pray with them. And we see all around us those who live lives focused on blessings. So we see people, don't we, who have a focus on the house that they live in. Or maybe it's the job that they have. Or the house in the right place. Or sending their children to the right schools. Or getting, uh, we li we're here in a university town, aren't we? Getting the right degree. Having the right credentials. Uh, we ask questions like, do our children have the right friends? Are they involved in the right activities? Do other people, especially this person or that in my life, think well of me? And these can all be good things uh, at times, but they can very uh, easily uh, end up being the things for which we live our lives. And then they're no longer good things, actually then they're not blessings, but status symbols. Because we've shifted our gaze from God who gives every good gift to the gifts that he has given. And we begin to find these things as most glorious. Now, this happened to Israel before this psalm was written as well. It wasn't, uh, it isn't unique just to us today. The story of the Ark of the Covenant, which I've already mentioned, uh, is interwoven all the way through First and Second Samuel. Maybe many of you know some of the highlights of this story. 
One of the highlights of this story is that Israel was so focused on God's blessings that they began to forget about God. In fact, they had begun to look at God as more of a lucky charm or an amulet than one that they worshipped. And so they were going out to battle, and that they, they were worried that they were going to lose the battle to the Philistines, and so they took the ark with them because they thought it was a lucky charm, and if they took it out to battle, then certainly they would win. But rather than winning the battle, what they had happened was that they lost the ark because they'd, they'd focused on the wrong things. They weren't seeking the Lord. They weren't seeking his permission, his guidance, his wisdom. They were walking in their own strength. So do we see God's glory or do we glory more in his gifts? But there are other things that we glory in too. It's not always his gifts. In fact, sometimes those are what some people call respectable sins. But there are other things we glory in too. More dangerously, even in the church, is our love of sin. Statistics tell us that even in the church, even in this church, there's a rampant addiction to pornography. We're told that pervasive misuse of alcohol and opioids and other substances run in our midst and that the statistics in evangelical churches isn't much different. There are things that are sin and that are wrong, sinful desires, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life that become the things that we glory in most and will sacrifice any more, any, almost anything else for those things, and it wrecks our lives. Far from meditating on the Word of God day and night, those who profess Christ go days, maybe even weeks, without reading their Bibles. And they can't quote a single verse, or maybe they can quote John 3.16, but they couldn't quote three or four more. And these are even in, in good churches. David, in his later kingship, is going to struggle with these same sorts of things, isn't he? But here, he lays out a call to the world. Here, he's taken up with the glory of God. He's seen the glory of God as, as he's seen this whole process of the ark and then the way that God has protected him and given him the kingship and given him victory in Jerusalem and begun to build his dynasty. And in the psalm, he commands us to be taken up with this same thing. He wants us to taste and see the glory of the Lord to delight in him and to, to pursue him. And he emphasizes this in this psalm in three ways particularly. And I want us to notice these emphases tonight. The first emphasis he gives us is that God created. The glory of the Lord is seen in the fact that God created. God is the one true and living God, and he's the one who made the heavens. So he tells us that no other idol that we can worship will stand. In fact, he tells us that all the other idols are worthless. They're created things. They're not the creator. Uh, the, the, uh, the prophets make fun. Isaiah makes fun, doesn't he, of people who cut down a tree and they use one half of it for firewood and they use the other half to, to worship and, and how worthless it is and what a mockery it is. We try to mix things, but God created and he's the only one who is worthy of praise. We had a couple began attending our church about 18 months ago. And I, I went to visit them a, a week or two after they had begun visiting. And, 
and they professed to be Christians, and I, I was asking how they'd come to know the Lord, and very quickly, uh, I was listening to this rambling story, and I realized that they were trying to tell me that for the last 30 years, they'd been both Buddhists and Christians. And I, I knew that this was inconsistent, so I thought, well, you know, I, I did evangelism explosion years ago. I know what question to ask. I said, can I ask you a quick question? If you were to die tonight, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? And the man said, I wouldn't die. Uh, I'd go to the heavenly processing center and I'd be reborn within 72 hours. I'd not heard that answer to that question before. Uh, and I knew it was inconsistent with what God taught and it was actually demonstrating that he had a hope somewhere else than God. There was something more glorious than God. And the reality is that the scriptures teach us that God created all things and he will not share his glory with another. And at the judgment, he will stand as the creator. And that's what David is saying here. He is the creator. He created the heavens. All of the idols are worthless. Every good thing that we have, it doesn't come from anywhere but from the hand of the Lord. That means that all of the, the meticulously created spider webs that glisten with dew in the morning, that, that take our breath away a little bit, he created these things. The lightning strike that just for a moment is unique and glorious in its beauty that you wonder at if you've ever seen a, a photograph of that, that perfect lightning storm in the desert where you just get that clear picture of it. He created that. Every child born with its minuscule finger and fingernails that are so perfect, its hands and its feet, they come from the Lord. But this psalm is focused on more than just the fact that he created all people, and that he's to be worshipped by all people. It also is focused on the fact that we see God's glory in the fact that he saves. So we see in verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. God did create all things. He created us and we rebelled and we fell under his judgment. But the story of the scriptures is that God created again. He created a people for himself. You might say he recreated. In Christ, he calls all people to himself. And he, just as he did at creation, he made us from nothing. In Christ, he's taken men and women who are dead in their sins and he's given them not just life, but eternal life and abundant life, creating again. And, and those who delight in sin and wickedness, he makes clean. Those who are filthy in sin, he makes perfect. Jesus Christ, we're told in 2 Corinthians, the sinless God-man died in our place. And as we call on him, we are the righteousness of God in him. This is, it's an amazing salvation that we couldn't hope to spend hours with and still plumb the depths of it. We could go on for, for days. The scriptures are all pointing to it. His glory is seen in his salvation. It's seen in his creation, but in his salvation. And this is why David says that we should tell of his salvation from day to day because we see his glory in creation, but we see his glory even more clearly in Christ. 
The creation points to him, and yet Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's glorious in his perfection and his beauty. He's magnificent, and he is splendid. And yet David gives us one more emphasis. So we see that God created, and we see that he saves, and we see his glory there. But we also see his glory in the fact that he governs, or in the fact that he judges. This psalm was written by a king who knew just how hard it was to rule or judge or reign justly, purely, fairly, mercifully, gracefully. Bring all of those words together. He'd been ruling for just a few short years, and yet he knew this was, this was something that was difficult. But we don't have to be kings to recognize this. When we hear at Christmas time, I have no doubt that in the next few weeks you are going to read or hear read or sing Isaiah 9. Have you ever considered when we read that text how glorious it is that Christ has the government on his shoulder? That's a glorious truth. Have you ever considered how wonderful it is when Isaiah says of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end? Have you looked around yourself and thought about how little peace you see and what a glorious truth it is that Christ has the government on his shoulders and his peace will have no end. In fact, it will increase and increase and increase. We're governed by men and women who are often, at the very best, inconsistent. So you have conversations about politics, and you find that you're lamenting corruption and partisan bickering and partisan favoritism and uh, graft and misappropriation of funds and unfulfilled campaign promises, and it doesn't even matter who you're supporting. You all have these same concerns. In the very best of our leaders, we see weakness and errors in judgment at times. How much should we look at a government in equity? We read here in the psalm that God judges in equity and think that is a glorious thing. We who have been created by Him and who have been saved by Him are now under His government, and it's righteous, and it's What do we hear of God over and over and over again in the Old Testament? He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he's relenting from disaster. This is our king. This is the one who governs our lives. This is the one whose law we have before us. And it ought to be beautiful to us. God's law. Read Psalm 119. God's law is a beautiful and lovely thing. So if we see these three things, what poor creatures we are if we are so short-sighted and myopically focused on the filth before us that we miss the glory of the Lord above. If you've seen the glory of the Lord, then how in the world Can your minds be caught up with carnal or lustful thoughts? I'm not saying they can't be, but we ought to ask ourselves these questions. We know that this is the the body of death that we carry around that Paul laments. How can we find our worth and value in our work or in parenting or our possessions when we know that we're the church of God which he obtained with his own blood? He ought to be of supreme 
glory to us. We, we ought not to pursue wealth and fame when his love is worth a million times more than the world can ever offer. Now, these problems aren't problems just in Mississippi where I was once a minister or in England where I'm a minister now or here in Lansing. They're, they're problems with the human heart. And yet God is glorious. He calls us to salvation and he governs us in equity. We have too small a taste for the glory of God. So flee to him. Flee to his merciful love. Fly to the cross and cling to it with delight because he pours forth love in abundance. Streams of endless delight are found in him. You will find joy in him. But as you turn to Christ, I hope, as you look to him, as you do flee to him and see his glory, how are you supposed to respond? Well, these are the two applications we see in the text, how we're supposed to respond. First of all, sing praises to the Lord. David knows that sometimes we read something or sing something quickly and we miss it the first time. And so in the opening verse, three times, in the opening two verses, three times, he tells us, sing to the Lord. That's a pretty clear application. Sing praises to the Lord. All the people are to sing his praises. In, in verses 7 to 9, we're told what we're, uh, that we're to ascribe to him glory, that we're to ascribe to him praise, that all the peoples of the earth are to glory uh, glorify his name, give him the glory that he is due, come into his courts, worship him in the splendor of holiness. So we're supposed to bring to him an offering of praise. We're to come to his courts and worship him. We're to worship him with our lips, but we're also to worship him with our lives in the splendor of holiness. Because can so pure and holy a God be worshiped with unclean lips? Can so righteous a God be worshipped by a soiled heart taken up with the charms of what the author of the Hebrews calls the fleeting pleasures of sin? So we sing to him and we cry out with the hymn writer, Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And as we lose all our guilty stains in the fountain filled with the blood that Cooper writes of, we ought to sing praises to his glory. Now, people around you know what you find glorious because you sing praises to the things that you find glorious. They hear your songs of praise. The people you work with, the people you study with, the people that you're around know what your favorite sport is. They know who your favorite team is. They know what you think about politics. They might even know what you pinned on Pinterest. They know what you glory in. Do they know that you love the Lord? Maybe they know that you go to church. But do they know that you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Sing praises to his glory. The call here is that we would have lives devoted to the glory of God. Our, our thoughts and our mouths and our lives ought to be taken up with the delights of the Lord of glory. How amazing is it that the Psalms tell us that He, this great and glorious God, delights in us? 
ought we not to delight in Him? And if this is the case, then our second response, our second application, is that we will tell of the greatness of the Lord. Tell of the greatness of the Lord. We sing forth His praises, but we also tell of His greatness. I quoted at the beginning John Piper, who says that missions exists because worship doesn't. David is driving home that same point in this text. And he uses several different verbs here in just the first three or four verses. <clears throat> the first is most obvious. As I already pointed out, he says, sing. It opens the psalm, and it's three times repeated. And so the very first one is that we ought to sing the glory of the Lord as we've always already addressed, excuse me. But then in verse 2, the ESV translates this, that we are to tell, tell of his salvation from day to day. Uh, this is a verb that is often translated as either preach or proclaim. It has the idea of, of proclaiming to those around us, of, of preaching to the nations. So sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his great salvation from day to day. When? Not just on Sundays, but day to day, tell, preach, proclaim his greatness. And this isn't just written to elders or to ministers. This is to all the nations, to everybody. We're to tell of his salvation. Then in verse 3, in the ESV, we read that we are to declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. Now, this verb, the, the corresponding noun, if you were to look it up, the, the noun form of this verb in Hebrew is actually the word book. So you can guess that this declare has something to do with writing most often. In fact, the participle of this verb is found in Psalm 45.1, and it's, uh, it's translated as uh, a scribe or a writer. So we see this, this picture of singing, of proclaiming, of writing down. David's using all of these verbs to press home that we are to tell the world of the greatness of the Lord, and we're to use every single means at our disposal to do so. Whatever means we have, we're to use to tell the nations of the glory of the Lord. We sing His praises, but Christian, tell the nations of the greatness of your Lord as well. Tell your friends and your neighbors and your associates and your classmates and those you know. This can be hard sometimes. Sometimes there's rules against it. Sometimes it's really uncomfortable. Sometimes we need to pray for boldness. It is nonetheless the command of the Scriptures for all of us. There's ways that we do this. Remember, I said use every means at your disposal. Sometimes it's with our own mouth or our own hands. Sometimes it's because we're praying for our ministers, for our elders, for our church's other ministries that are doing evangelistic outreach, for uh, those who are coming into Lansing from all around the world as we pray for these needs. I mean, th this is something that we can do that is one of the means at our disposal to tell the nations of the Lord. I plead for you to pray for your missionaries. Pray for us 
as you support missionaries, as you pray for missionaries, as you think of them. Pray that they and we would be bold. I mentioned already, pray that we would find our identities in Christ. We are like everyone else. Usually, we either find our identities in something we're really good at, or something we'd like to be good at, or in something that we're really bad at and we're ashamed of. But our identity is in Christ. And how are we going to sing of and tell the nations of the glory of the Lord if we're focused on ourselves? We need to see the glory of the Lord. Pray that for your missionaries. Pray that we would love Him and that we would walk in His ways. Pray that we would know the untold riches of fellowship with Him and see the fruit of this in our ministries. Pray this for your ministers, for your elders, for those who serve you here and missionaries around the world. Pray that God would make us bold. The Apostle Paul, who is maybe one of the boldest men I can think of in the Scriptures, next to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, writes to the churches, and again and again he asks that they would pray for his boldness. I could tell you that all of your elders and ministers and the missionaries you support, I myself, if Paul needs boldness, then I certainly need boldness. So pray these things. Pray that God's word would go forth and that you would have a part in it. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, our words... My words are inadequate to show forth your glory. And yet, Lord, in your word, we see your Son. We who are united to him by your Spirit know him. We hear his voice and we recognize it because we are his sheep. Lord, I pray that we would see his glory, that we would love it. I pray, Lord, that we would long for him, that we would sing of him, and that we would tell others of him. I pray, Lord, that you would give us a delight in the one who delights in us. And we do pray, Lord, that the nations would sing your praises. In Jesus' name, amen.